Welcome to the Unconventional Dyad Podcast, where psychology and psychoanalysis meet social justice, feminism, politics, climate change, critical theory, graduate student mental health, and the arts. Your hosts are Carly and Laura, two graduate students and friends committed to bridging the gap between the field of psychology, social issues, and society. Thank you for joining us. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Unconventional Dyad podcast. Today, we talk to Carlos Padron, a psychoanalyst living in New York. We were fortunate enough to speak with him when we first started the podcast. You can find him on episode number five, which is one of our most listened to episodes. Today, we speak about a variety of topics, and we decided to split our conversation into two episodes. We begin by talking about the ethics of care within psychoanalysis, what care means, and how we might use or misuse empathy in the consulting room with our patients. We discuss the radical use of silence, contemplative stillness, and attentive listening. We further explore how our use of empathy might cut off or foreclose possibilities with that patient and within the intersubjective space. We hope you enjoy the first part of this series, and we hope you can tune in to part two. Carlos, welcome back to the podcast. We are so excited to have you back and talk to you again. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, As I was telling you before, I, I always listen to your podcast. It's getting always better and more interesting, and I very honored to be, you know, amongst the first ones to to be invited and then to be back is it's really, really cool. I'm very happy. Yeah. And and very happy for you too for what you're doing. It's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, things have changed quite a bit since you were last on and you know, we we reached out actually we I think you might have reached out to us and we really wanted to keep keep talking, keep digging in. And so I hope that our conversation today is fruitful for our listeners and also to us too. So. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. Let's see what, what we come up with today. Yeah. Um, so the first question I have for you, Carlos, is we were really brainstorming some ideas of topics for today. And one thing that really came to mind for me is ethics, specifically within psychoanalysis. And I'm wondering if you can kind of just launch us off talking a little bit about how you understand ethics under the umbrella of psychoanalysis. Okay, that's a very um, broad and very interesting question. Um well, leaving aside the what normally people and sadly in some institutes are taught, which is only the the you know professional ethics, right? Like boundaries and you know that, you know don't 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 have sex with your patients, kind of thing, right? That it's uh, very you know basic stuff that I think it's more like a mandatory thing uh, in order to. Uh, I don't know why. I think kind of like to the institutes to feel that they're doing something the right thing, or that, or that they they want then to avoid you know uh, being sued from somebody who studied there and say, oh, you never taught me that I shouldn't have sex with my patients, right? something like that, right? Uh, that's the most uh, 
this is all very important, of course, right? But I think it should, the, the professional should develop out of a broader sense, that professional ethics should develop out of a broader sense of an ethics of psychoanalysis. This, this was talked mostly of, uh, about, about, by Lacan. He, 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 he wrote thoroughly about it. I will not be talking about Lacan today. Um, I, I, well, for different reasons, they're not, not important, but the most important of which is I, I, uh, as many people have difficulty understanding him. And on the other hand, the things that I do understand, I tend to sometimes disagree. So, uh, so, so it's not something that I, I know much. So, so I could talk more from, from my experience of the idea of an ethics. Um, I think that the, um, the, the, the basic idea, as I see it, of psychoanalysis from an ethical point of view, or from the ethics of, 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 the, of, the, of the process, of the analytic process, is one that could be called an ethics of care or an ethics of uh, alterity or of otherness. I tend to, I would kind of like, I relate the two. It's an ethics that's based on a certain idea of care and I, which ties into an idea of uh, respect uh, and for otherness, difference or alterity, depending on, on how you, prefer to, to, to call it, right? So what does that mean, right? Uh, I think it means that, for example, let's think about it in contrast to other forms of therapy, or, or let's call them the more, the ones that are more directive, the ones that are, you know, fan, follow manuals as to, mm-hmm. you know, what to do, A, B, C, D, and is they're a little bit um, uh, general, uh, it's in its application to patients, regardless of uh, you know their their specific differences. Uh, so kind kind of like manualistic forms of treatment. I I I think they have they have their place. They they are they can work, uh, especially to assuage specific symptoms uh, on a short term basis. So I I I don't have a criticism uh, to them in themselves. I'll go to a critique of their use, their broader use in the culture, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if we compare it to those forms of therapy, psychoanalysis is a, is a process through which the analyzon patient, client, so the other person speaks freely and the analyst listens. It's based on something very, a very simple structure, right? Uh, or a very simple setting. And through that, somebody says that instead of being talking, instead of being called the talking cure, it should have been called the listening cure. Mm. And because the analyst, what mostly does is listen, uh, listen in a very particular way, and what Freud Claw called a free flow with free floating attention. I'll go back to this idea of attention, which I think is very important and is related to care, I think. And the patient speaks freely about whatever comes to their mind. Um, so what is the, the, what is the ethical stance here? And from the analyst perspective is of radical openness to the patient's uh, 
let's say, linguistic and psychological creations and productions. There's no judgment. There's no, uh, I mean, as, as least as a horizon of, 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 of something where we, 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 we hope for. We try to, I think it's impossible as humans being not, not to judge or not to value some certain things more than other, but as much as possible to try to suspend judgment or judgments of value, or at least keep them to ourselves, keep an open mind and just let ourselves be affected, uh, affected by what the patient is saying. So that's the first thing, right? The, this utter respect for the other person and what the other person says without mm -hmm. trying to change it, without trying to normalize it, without saying it's okay to do this, mm -hmm. it's okay to do that, you're allowed to feel this as is become uh, in a way very, very common nowadays in, in, in therapy, mm -hmm. allowed to do this, allowed to say that, just listening to them. Um, and definitely not telling the patient what to do. Mm -hmm. That's another important thing, right? So there's a respect for the other person's subjectivity. That's the broader sense. As, as a, and that ties into this question of care. The question of care, if, if it's and if it's psychoanalysis, is in some form is an ethics of care. Is is care again as a form of um, attention? and close attention to what the other person says and respect for what to what the other person says or does right there's something that uh, i don't know you might have heard the psychoanalyst hans lowell mm -hmm. uh, he has he, he was a german philosopher, uh, philosopher. I, I said philosopher because he he, he trained originally as a philosopher, and his uh, teacher was Heidegger. And then he became forever estranged from Heidegger after Heidegger had this participation in National Socialism. Uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, Lowell it was Jewish. So I think that's why I, I, I said philosopher, but also because he's, his uh, psychoanalytic theory and writing is very philosophical and it's very much intertwined with philosophy. He makes, he, he, in his very famous paper on therapeutic action, he talks about, um, uh, he reinterprets the idea of neutrality. And that, I'm going to connect it with the idea of care, right? He says that psychoanalysis up until then, especially American psychoanalysis that became very you know, medicalized, aspires to be a kind of like a natural science, etc. cetera, um, understood neutrality at, in this scientific, natural scientific way, right? That in order to understand the natural world, you have to suspend all form of subjective, um, uh, all form of subjectivity, right? that that would only get in the way of understanding the world, the natural world objectively. And he says that, uh, uh, he says that that taken onto the analytic situation as many ego psychologists did in the fifties, for example, 
it leads to this idea that the analyst is totally, you know, uh, it's only a spectator of the process and it's totally disengaged. Uh, and what the analyst does is simply reflect back as a this pure mirror what the patient is saying, right? And sending back to them in this kind of like unblemished, um, a pure way, what the patient is doing without any, without passing through the through the therapist or the analyst subjectivity, and he says that this is basically this is not possible. Uh, that in order to, when the object of understanding of our observation or interpretation is another human being, and our objective is to understand them from the inside. Right, not from the outside, not only describing their behavior, but to try to understand their subjectivity. The only way is to become engaged in an intersubjective relationship with them, such that in that way we're both particip- observers but participants in the relationship. So, given that that's the case, so how do we understand uh, uh, neutrality? Right, this idea that we should not pass judgment, we should not, the the general idea, right, that we should not interfere in the patient's associations, that we don't tell people what to do, that we have have a neutral stance on what the patient says, right? But he says that it's about, it's not about being a, a pure reflective mirror, it's about being, uh, treating what they say with the utmost care he says, and love, mm. right? That when you really care and love about another person and what the other, in the sense of the, what's called analytic love, mm-hmm. what, you're, what you're trying is to, the, 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 the result is respect to, for what the patient is saying and respect for their subjectivity, right? So in that sense, neutrality is being engaged emotionally with somebody, but yet respecting it's about respecting what they say and what their internal world how their internal world is you see and to be curious about it to ask about it to not assume that what i think is necessarily what the other person is thinking you see so and he interestingly says that's very similar to the kind of neutrality that the scientist has with the natural world, right? When they're studying, let's say, uh, the, um, I don't know, plants or animals, or they're studying the, um, let's say, uh, chemical processes, they're trying to understand them in themselves because they love their object of study, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's out of care for what you're studying that you try as much not to interfere in, in, in what you are observing or what you're studying. So there's a similarity, but the thing is that the care towards the natural world is different than care towards the human beings. Well, some people might disagree with that, right? Especially uh, Mm -hmm. people who have a more ecological point of view, but I think there is a difference, uh, which doesn't mean that we can care for the natural world in, in very profound ways, right? So that's one thing about the, this idea of, of care. Does care, so the other thing, I, I, I found something here when we, um, 
there there is a um 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 I don't know if you've heard of uh, she was a philosopher a Christian myth a French philosopher Christian mythic uh mystic and political activist who's called Simone Weil uh that I like very much and she was born in 1909 and died in, in 1943 um and she talks about you know, she was very involved in uh, in helping suffering people. Um, and in one place, she talks about, um, she says that the root of her compassionate care, it's also about compassion, right? Mm -hmm. Compassionate care was what was a practice of what she calls attention. Remember, Freud talks about free-floating attention, right? I want to keep, he uses the word attention. And Weil, uh, Simone Weil defines attention as contemplative stillness, mm. right? And she describes it, describes it as an emptiness that permits the other to enter into one's consciousness and heart. Mm. And I want to think that that's a lot what happens in the analytic situation when we care about the patient, we let the, uh, through a form of contemplative stillness, the stillness, I think it's important because it relates to a form of temporality that is very particular to us. Uh, I would call it psychoanalytic temporality, which is that it slows things down, right? Especially in the world now where, as we were talking about before, I was talking about before with manualistic treatments and everything, it's all about speed, results, short-term treatments. There's no space for stillness, right? So it's interesting that she says contemplative stillness and an emptiness through which you let the other fill you up. The other enters into your consciousness. So it's like you letting yourself be affected by the other person's uh, way of speaking, the patterns through which they speak, the tonality. Bolas, he has a very interesting book called Catch Them Before They Fall, Christopher Bolas. And he talks there, and I think in other places, about how you, when you meet, when you're getting to know a patient, you're getting to know their speech, their not only their speech, their verbal and nonverbal language. You're taking it in the same way you take in music. He says, right, let's say if you listen to, uh, I don't know, I think he gives example of like, a, a, you know, let's say a Beethoven sonata is going to be different from a Bach fugue, for example, right? So you take it in and you start recognizing and you get kind of like filled up by this, the person's subjectivity, which comes in the forms of tones, gestures, um, silences, uh, patterns, as I said before, and you let yourself. So that kind of attention is a form of care. I think so. You know, and letting yourself be affected that way. The question is, and you can stop me at whatever point, I think there's a lot of things to talk about here, but, but how is it related to empathy? Is it related to empathy or not? And I think that's a difficult question, right? It's like when what Simone Val when she's saying 
an emptiness that permits the other to enter your consciousness. Is she talking about empathy? Uh, I don't let, I'll leave that in suspense, right? Or is care a form of empathy, right? My, my, my answer, tentative answer, and I can give you some examples as to why I'm, this is my answer. I think that empathy can be a form of care, but there's form of care that do not require empathy. Hmm. In the following sense, I'll give you an example, right? We as therapists, we want to, we want to help people. There's an impulse in us to help and to, I hopefully to care for people, right? Though not every analyst will agree that uh, psychoanalysis has an ethics of care. Okay? I mean, this is a contentious point, okay? And I think that especially Lacanian analysts would have a contention on this idea of care that I'm putting forward. But leaving that aside, um, I think that sometimes people might feel that I'll give you a case of a patient. Sometimes I've had patients who feel that my empath at the beginning when I don't when I don't know them, my empathetic or my empathic comments, oh, it must have been difficult to go through such and such or whatever that we often use, they take it as a lack of empathy. Mm. <laughs> Interestingly speaking. Yep. Uh, why? Because sometimes the person feels that I'm patronizing them by making a comment like that, uh, that I am um, not a person who values their autonomy very much because they needed to become very autonomous early on in their lives, maybe because their parents you know, weren't there for them, so they developed this sense of, of autonomy, but in this reactive way, right? Like I, maybe autonomy is not the word. What would be the word? Like when you feel that, like this sense of I can only count on myself kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Autonomy sounds pretty, pretty spot on. But it's very, but it's reactive in the sense that I can't, I can't ask for help. Uh, asking, receiving help is a sign of weakness. You know that kind of thing. So when you extend or you make a comment that you believe is empathetic, you're kind of like in a way attacking something that's at the core of what has kept them you know alive in many ways right so it's like you're telling them oh you're not you can't you're not rely you're not self-reliant you need me you need my help you're weak so there might they might there could be a, and it's happened to me right there can be a moment of misattunement with the patient because that's not what they need from you in order to create a therapeutic alliance, which is a form of creating a space where the patient feels that you care, that they can trust you. You see, that's that's I think that's very interesting. Um, with because we immediately assume that that you know just being showing empathy is uh, people are going to take it. Um, as a, uh, as you being connected or attuned to them, mm -hmm. that's not necessarily the case. 
right? So care can come in different forms and shapes, right? Sometimes care is setting a boundary for a patient, you know? And the patient might even get angry at you. I might get frustrated, but that doesn't mean that at some level they don't feel that you're caring for them, right? That would be opposed to empathy, that you might say, you know, a patient, let's say patients with maybe, you know, borderline structures, right? That they tend to try to to, um, shake or play or want to disrupt the frame, Mm -hmm. might, you know, you might try to be empathetic. You might say, oh, I understand. It makes sense that you, uh, you, you know, you can't, you know, uh, you couldn't come to the session because, you know, whatever, whatever excuse or reason they offer to you. So, you know, given that that's the case, I'm not going to charge for the session, for example, right? And you're feeling that you're being empathetic. You probably are. But they might not feel that that's caring for them at some level. Even if they're happy, superficially, unconsciously, they might not feel cared for. Because sometimes, because uh, sticking to the frame is a way of holding them and containing them and making them feel safer in the way adolescents are. You know, you've seen adolescents. Adolescents, they're constantly playing, well, kids too, but adolescents, it's more in the more dramatic way. They're always playing to see how, what are our limits? What are the boundaries, right? How far they can go. And if you don't set, some parents would say they won't set any limits because they don't want to get into arguments or they want to be empathetic. Oh, I know how it was when I was your age, blah, 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 etc. And then, and or they don't want to deal with the, with the adolescent's frustration. But un, beneath this, rebellion there is uh, a need for boundaries mm-hmm. and if they don't get those boundaries they don't feel cared for so you see care can come in many shapes and forms mm-hmm. uh, um, there's an analyst Patricia Gerovici she says you can sometimes beat people with kindness you see you know, it, it's so interesting you mentioned that, Carlos. I, I wrote a blog post several months ago now about this very idea. And where I see this becoming an issue is specifically working with victims of violence, whether it's sexual violence or physical violence. Our, 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 our push to empathize can be taken very much the wrong way. Um, and ultimately, I do think that a lot of that is our own discomfort with the patient's violence. Um, or, or the experiences of our patients' experience, the, our experience of the patient's experience. I think a lot of that is our, our counter-transference and why we want to empathize. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, but I, I've been thinking about this a lot, uh, just our push to empathize and really where that's coming from. I don't know if it's coming from a place of compassion. I think it's coming from a very different different place. I fully agree with you. Sometimes mm-hmm. empathy can be a way of making ourselves as therapists feel less anxious, mm-hmm. right? Or feel like, um, you know, empathy can be a way of, like, going back to the 
to the the parent of of the adolescent, right? Empathetic. Oh, I know how it was when I was a kid. I was adolescent, so okay, go out, whatever. I don't know, whatever it is that they're doing, but, but that you feel they shouldn't be doing. Um, it's to not have to deal with something that might make you feel anxious, right? It's not wanting to deal with something on the one hand. Or on the other hand, as a therapist, feeling that you're doing something as a therapist, right? Because we feel sometimes that we, well, we have certain ideas of therapy, like we have to be empathetic. We have, if somebody you know, starts crying or is in pain that immediately you have to say, oh, it must have been very difficult to go through such and such and this or that, or simply because we feel that we need to do something. We can't stay silent. We feel like being silent is doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And being silent is, is not doing nothing. It's doing lots. And sometimes the patient is going to feel more cared for if you remain silent. Mm -hmm. Specifically, what, what you're, you're, you're saying with cases of trauma, it's been my experience too, that sometimes people, at therapists, get deceived by this idea that empathy is kind of like this way of unraveling the mystery of the other's trauma, right? Uh, which is always the trauma extremely idiosyncratic. If something is idiosyncratic, is a trauma. So you can't assume that through empathy, you have this magical access to what it was like for such and such person to, to go through such and such trauma. That's the one thing. And I think it's probably been your experience that when you assume that, People with trauma can oftentimes feel hurt, offended, misunderstood, right? Or they can be re-traumatized by you. Um, you know, it's kind of like saying, oh, I know, I know what you mean, right? I know. Well, and this person might have you know, you probably see people with extreme traumatic circumstances. And it's, 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 it's like another part of a psychoanalysis of the ethics is it's radical honesty. You see? So patients register when you're bullshitting them. Not right? only that, I, yeah, not, not only that, Carlos, it seems not only that you're closing off another possibility. If you say, for example, you might have said, wow, that sounds like that must have been really hard or whatever that might be. You're closing off another possibility. Wow, that sounds like that was really hurtful or you might have felt fearful. Maybe they were feeling angry. Maybe they were feeling something else. Exactly. So like you're closing off other possibilities of that subjective or even intersubjective experience with that patient. I agree. You you uh yeah you close it you you foreclose it okay. it's mm -hmm. it's it's a way of of and i agree with you i mean that's why there are many ways of showing um that you're that you care you see i think that care again going back to i don't think it's a feeling or it's about necessarily about empathy it's about a type of attention that you have mm -hmm. towards the other 
and a respect you have towards the other. And if we depart from that case, right, you're not going to say, oh, it must have been very difficult, whatever, which is ultimately going to be very generic things when it comes to trauma. Because again, it's going to, it's very specific. It's going to be very idiosyncratic, right? So the patient might, might get offended or they might say, yes, it was very difficult. And then they never talk about other aspects, right? Especially, for example, with sexual trauma, right? If you, and I think uh, this is a, a, a delicate point because when you speak about it nowadays, you know what I'm about to say, you have to be very careful and, I, and I'm going to be very careful um, that if somebody is the victim of sexual trauma, uh, let's say a woman is the victim of sexual trauma, and you want to explore the trauma, right, what it meant to the person, psychoanalytically, that's what you're going to do. What was the experience of them? If you, of course, let's say it wasn't the patient's fault, right? I don't, I mean, again, all this discussion, right? I mean, don't, the, the victim blaming. I fully agree with that, okay? But I sometimes feel that if you, sometimes an intervention might be, you know, it seems like you're blaming yourself and how could it be your fault, right? Or, or something along the lines of questioning because patients will feel that it's their fault too. It's not only the culture telling them, it's also them feeling that it's their fault. And it's not only because they internalize these messages about like, you know, kind of like women who are raped because they were dressed sexy or they were a little bit drunk. They were ultimately, you know, uh, it was their fault because of that, which is, it's not only because they internalize that, but it's because psychologically speaking, it gives people who are victims of any form of abuse some sense of control over, mm-hmm. over what happened to them. It's like when kids, right? The kids, they... They blame themselves all the time for, let's say, a parent leaves and then they feel it is their fault because from being helpless and passive, they have some control over the situation. So in this case, blaming people who are victim of sexual abuse, they tend to blame themselves in, in, in conscious or unconscious ways. At least that's what I found. So if you say to... And this is why I don't want it to be about victim blaming. But if you tell the patient, perhaps too soon, this wasn't your fault. Mm-hmm. You can't, you don't have access to why the person is feeling guilty about it. And I think you need to get to that in order to help the person really heal from the trauma. Or else it's just mm-hmm. like, okay, it's like you put a huge band-aid. Okay, it's not my fault. That's going to do lots for the patient. Of course, it's going to do lots, but there's but you're not going to sense get to the this inner sense of guilt. Why do you feel? Why do you feel? What's the guilt? Where is it coming from? Right. So that's another another case in which you jumping to something into something because you want to be a good therapist because you don't want to deal with material that's very difficult to hear, you might foreclose something. And the interesting thing is that it comes from good intentions. It's not because you're trying to be bad, right? But we know that the path to hell is, is what is all of good intentions or something, right? 
Mm-hmm. And it's not, it happens many times. Mostly these things come out of good intentions. Just like when, uh, you know, other examples, um, you know, somebody presents something that seems to you like depression. And then you tell them, oh, it seems, oh, it looks like you're depressed. I, I, I don't do that, right? Because, or very rarely, unless it's something that I feel the patient will, they've been confused about it and it's, it might help them organize themselves in some way. But, but the thing is that if I say it's depression, the, pace, the worst thing that can happen is the patient says, yes, it is. And then they feel that they don't need to talk about it what it is in their own words about their subjective experience. So again, it forecloses the further, you know, uh, elaboration of, 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 of the subjective experience of, of the patient. I once wrote, I can, I can, I have some things that I, about empathy. So this brings us to the question. I mean, again, we are talking about the difference between care and empathy. There are dangers of, with empathy. I'm not saying that we shouldn't use empathy, but we have to be careful, right, with empathy as therapists. I'm saying it's, it's an important, it's necessary in our work. There are other Lacanians would feel that it's not necessary. I think that empathy is necessary. Um, I, I have a different idea of empathy uh, that, uh, than other people have. But I mean, that would be like a whole, maybe too long. I don't think it's just like I feel like you feel because there's this kind of like magical transmission. I think it has to do with both of us sharing language uh, and which something along those lines. It has to do more with language and inhabiting a common form of life where we could both kind of like access to at least similar experiences. Um, I think people who foreclose the or exclude empathy at all from work. Many Lacanians do. I think they forget, and they work with language mostly. They forget that if language is a public phenomenon and it's based on public, uh, uh, on, on common, it's a praxis. If language is based on a praxis, a practice, and it's a public phenomenon, then a lot of our, our subjective experiences have to be shared in some way or another. They're also passed through each person's subjectivity, et cetera, but there has to be some form of commonality that we have access to, and that's what I would call empathy. Not just this kind of like now everybody's an empath, and it's like, oh, you know, not everybody. Most Some people, it's like, oh, I just feel everything. I think that most of the cases is just that the person is just projecting whatever they want to project, and they feel that they're, they can read everybody. So some of the dangers of the empathy, which I think is part of the ethics of psychoanal of a of an ethics of care and psychoanalysis, it's here. Well, number one is to feel that if I feel something, then the other person should be feeling the same thing, mm-hmm. right? It's I believe that countertransference, right? Our countertransference or this intersubjective. Uh, back and forth or feel that's produced between the patient and myself, the diet and the therapy will uh, sometimes produce in me reactions, feelings, images, reveries that um, might come from the patient and not from me, 
right? But we have to be careful with that because sometimes it's unrelated to the patient and it's only about me. So that's one thing to be, to be in, within an ethics of care, we have to be careful. There's like two extremes, being careful or being careless. Being careless is just kind of like uh, withholding something from the patient, withholding something and understanding um, something that we could say, something that we could do, right? Sometimes when we feel frozen, the other day, Marcos Posadas, he's a, a Mexican um, psychoanalyst, IPA analyst, he was talking about how sometimes people uh, confuse countertransference with just being frozen, right? I mean, in the sense that sometimes we, we feel that we have nothing to say, right? But it's because we're too anxious about what's coming up in the relationship with the other person. So we get frozen. And we don't understand that it's we're frozen because we're we're too anxious. We think that it's just we we're just being silent and listening to the patient. Right? So that's a way of being careless because we're not sufficiently connected to ourselves in relation to the other person. And the other way is being is that we have to be careful, right? Careful in this sense of being careful with empathy, right? This dangerous. The other one is creating the fantasy that me and the other person are the same. Mm -hmm. And this especially happens with people who are similar, let's say racially, gender-wise, in terms of sexual identity, in terms of nationality, ethnicity, it can easily produce this sense that we're the same. And this means that we have matching experiences. And that's, you know, I understand nowadays that people, we see it more and more, especially, you know, people of color. And as you know, I work mostly with people of color, that they want therapists who they say, understand my experiences that look like me. That's something that you hear quite a lot. And I have seen people of color who have been with therapists, uh, let's say white therapists sometimes, not only, but some, with white therapists who are clueless or have done some form of, of they've hurt the patient because they haven't been open to their experience or having understood them. So they come, but they might come to me feeling then, so Carlos, you and I are the same. Mm -hmm. And then we share experiences. And I heard, I saw one, you know, I have a Instagram page and, I, and I, I've been more checking out other Instagram pages to see what people post, mm -hmm. kind of like to see what's the, 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 the spirit of the times in terms mm -hmm. of mental health. And there's a lot of people of color that I see that they will say, oh, I finally found my therapist who's a therapist of color to whom I don't have to explain a bunch of things because they all really already understand. I think that's a danger. That then the patient feels I don't need to say. And then the therapist might feel good about it. Mm -hmm. Right. Because the patient feels that, oh, yeah, you know, 
that it, it, it plays into something narcissistic in the, in the therapist. So the therapist will not ask the patient out of fear that then the patient is going to feel that they're not alike. Right? Yeah. So, so that's, a, that's another danger of, of, of empathy, I think. Another one is we can use it as a defense against not knowing. Right. In order to when we're anxious about not knowing what's going on in the treatment or in the process with the other person, which happens many times, we use empathy in order to to make up something uh, that we feel we're, we're knowing. Right. Oh, the patient, the patient might be in pain. It must be or we're people with trauma. Right. Sometimes we feel we don't know what's going on or what what the trauma is about. They can be paralyzed. They can be not speaking. Etc. And then you assume, oh, the patient must be in a lot of pain, or it must be, etc. When it's not necessarily the case, it might be any number of other things. I have a couple more. Uh, um, the other, the last thing, not distinguishing what it's like to be, what it's like to be the other from what it's like to be me trying to be like the other, right? Because I can never be the other. <laughs> it's me trying to be like the other. So it always passes through a bit of my own subjectivity, right? Um, so these are some of the, some of the, the, some dangers. Another danger is that we assume that we know what the other person needs mm -hmm. without asking, without being clear, without having known the person. We hear that often. I don't know, maybe you heard it in when you go to supervision groups. Oh, why did you do that? Well, I did that because I thought that was the, what, what the patient needed. Uh, I haven't done such and such because I don't think the person needs that. I once said that to a supervisor, and my supervisor asked me, how do you know what the patient needs? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I, was like I think that now the patient needs to some more, uh, you know, supportive, holding comment, interpretation. I think that's what they need because they're not ready. So, and she would ask me, how do you know what they need? Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. And we might, and especially with people who are disadvantaged, who are, for one or another reason, in, on a, because of their class, their gender, um, ethnicity, etc., that we tend, we can tend to invent needs in the other, in order to position ourselves as the one who can help them. Mm -hmm. If not the savior. That happens especially with poor people. And it has happened through history. You see, it's not, we're not exempt from that. It's happened in history when, let's say, the colonizers from Spain or, or let's say, Spain came to Latin America. They saw the indigenous populations and they felt, oh, these people are savages. They need to be Christianized or else they're going to hell. 
So they invent these needs in them and they position themselves as the missionaries, the saviors. Mm-hmm. It's happened with the anthro- anthropologists. It's happened with, in many occasions, it happens between men and women under patriarchy, right? You believe you know better than what a woman needs so that you can teach them. And they, and then that's like, who's asking your opinion? Now, like a modern woman would say, who, who asked for your opinion? <laughs> But again, it's like, you know, the man, mansplaining, all these things. It's inventing a need or a lack in the other to position yourself as the one who knows. And I think that's, again, that's anti-analytic in every way. Or we have to be careful with that. Again, these are all, nobody's pure. We all fall back on one thing or the other, right? It's, we have an unconscious. We, we can't control many things in our lives. But we have to be attentive to that. So again, that's another part of the ethics, I think, of care, right? Is is being attentive to that. Um, Carlos, well, really, really quick, Carlos, I have a few thoughts about that. So I'm please, actually giving, <laughs> I'm giving a talk at my school uh, this upcoming week, and that is a primary focus on my talk. And I am incredibly anxious. We don't have to talk about why I'm anxious necessarily. That's going to get off topic, but. I think that that idea that you just talked about is it's really hard to talk about in a group of psychologists. I think that people have a really hard time understanding that this idea of inventing problems, um, putting yourself in a position of privilege rather than in, in a position of being advantaged. Like I think that by doing that, we are inherently putting ourselves in a position of, of privilege. And I think it's, it's really dangerous. Um, I don't know. I, I'm so glad you touched on that for mm-hmm. sure. I fully agree with you. It's a position mm-hmm. of privilege, of power, mm-hmm. right? It, 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 broadly speaking, it puts you, there's already a differential of power within the therapeutic relationship, you see? And I oppose to the, the, uh, uh, in, uh, the, the relationists, I don't think it can be eliminated. Even if you if you say things about yourself, if you have self-disclosures, I don't think it can be eliminated. I think it's a fantasy that if you disclose things about your life, you're going to mm-hmm. eliminate the power differential between you and the patient. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, what you can do is address these issues of power that are meant to come up within the relationship right? That's a very important thing. A very, very important thing. Especially when you're working with people who are different from you. And especially people who are different from you and who historically and socially, politically have some form of disadvantage or have had some form of disadvantage. So that you're the one who's not only the the therapist, the doctor, whatever, right? How they're people think of us, but you're also privileged socially or historically Mm -hmm. speaking, right? So these things are meant to happen and these power dynamics, and I think they're meant to, they have to be explored. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why psychoanalysis is different from other forms of therapies, because these things are explored within this relationship between you and the, and the, and the patient, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But it's definitely, very important. I mean, this inventing or, or 
uh, pathologizing or over pathologizing, uh, diagnosing, mm-hmm. um, uh, using these umbrella terms, you know, all depressed or anxious or this. And I'm always like, well, what do you mean? If ask any of your people who study with you, psychologists, or your professors, what's anxiety? It's not an easy answer. It's not an easy thing to say. And yet we always talk about, oh, this is a very anxious person. I don't claim to know what it is. I have some <laughs> idea. But at least when a patient says, I'm feeling anxious, and I always ask him, what's it like to be for you to be anxious? Some mm-hmm. people will tell me, oh, I feel something here in my chest, or I feel it comes in the form of worries, or it comes in in the form of forgetfulness, or it comes in the form of this unease, or it comes in the form of this hypervigilance, or whatever it might be, a bunch of different things, or sometimes they don't even know what it is, and yet they call it anxiety. So why do they call it anxiety, you see? Uh, but, so, again, you, we have to be careful with these, with these, again, positioning ourselves as the one who knows. The patient is going to put us in the position of the one who knows. That's what, you know, the Lacanians talk about, uh, about that, right? Inevitably. And that's where I think it's important to not fall prey to the temptation of becoming that person. I think so. Mm-hmm. And it's not and that's part of the ethics of psychoanalysis too. Because it's and you're not doing it because you want to frustrate the patient because you're bad because you whatever. You're doing it because you care. Mm-hmm. That's where it's 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 less <laughs> it's less um it's less apparent, right? Because normally in other circumstances Let's say if you're, you know, if maybe when you're, if you're with a kid and you're the one who knows and you have to exert that authority as a way of caring for, for a kid, mm-hmm. that's a form of care, I would say. If you don't exert some form of authority because you know that you're not caring for somebody who's, you know, just learning how to be in the world, etc. Of course, without becoming authoritarian and, uh, you know, and all that, but I'm talking about authority, not a, a being authoritarian, which is very different. But in the analytic space, it's it's if you do that, I don't think you're really helping the person or you're really caring for the person. Because what you want is the person to come up with their own idea of what is it that they should do, how is it that they should lead their lives, and why. Um, you know, I have patients who tell me, Carlos, why do you, what do you think I should do? invariably at one point or another well not invariably many patients have told me and I I can I sometimes don't say anything sometimes I'll tell them but why would I know better than you what to do and these are people who let's this is what's interesting right let's say I have a, a, a female or female identified patient and she's always complaining that she always acquiesces to what guys do and she's Mm. tired of doing it and 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 or even a uh, a patient a female patient who would be 
you know, uh, feminist and anti-patriarchy, et cetera, at some point asked me, what do you think I should do? And then I have to tell her, why would I know better than you? And then they're, they're caught like, oh my God, what did, I, what did I just do? You see, that's how entrenched the thing is. And it becomes alive there in between. But I, I you know, but it's, so, you know, I, I can't just go with the, so it's also an ethics of, of containment, I think, mm-hmm. of containment, of, of self, what, what, what Simone Val was saying. She uses, I think, some beautiful words. I forgot them. It's, she says, a stillness uh, that is, um, what was it? Um, uh, wait, I'm, I'm, I'm just looking for it because I forgot. A contemplative stillness, mm. right? Uh, and the stillness also implies that you don't, you're not reactive. You see? You don't immediately react. That to me seems so radical. And it, it brings, I know we didn't get a chance to talk about it a whole lot today, but this idea of productivity and how much of our work with patients is about productivity. How can we get our patients more productive, getting back to work, getting back to family? That that idea of contemplative stillness, is that what she called it? Mm-hmm. That to me is such a radical idea. Mm-hmm. And I love it. <laughs> I love it too. I, I was reading it because I was... Uh... It was good. We, we, you know, we were talking about talking. We we had talked about the ethics of of care, and also I I have been uh, talking it with a with, with a colleague of mine called Tracy Seitzinger, and and she's going to be on the uh, podcast, by the way. Oh, she's, cool! That's coming awesome, on. Man. Yep. <laughs> I'm very happy. So talking about it, and so also then you know reading more about it. And I came up with that, and I was like, "Oh my God, this is so in- it's it's awesome," and it has to do with that that stillness, not react, not being reactive. So there's two things, right? One, I'm going to connect it to the idea of productivity that we were also talking about before about how this kind of ethics of care and psychoanalysis is a form of of uh, can be thought of as a critique of 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 the kind of like capitalist understanding of, of um, mental health, broadly speaking, of uh, subjectivity, even in more general. I'll get to that. But first, the idea of the stillness, non-reactivity, which is to, you know, um, and, and, and that's, it's an ethics because it requires, a for, it's a form of praxis, right? Let's say a patient gets very angry at you. And then a part of you might be, let's say if it happened outside the consulting room or the space, you might just yell back, right? And say, what the hell are you thinking or whatever, right? Um, Or somebody asks you a question. You answer normally. But this is a very particular space because... Sometimes you have to see, well, let me think about the question. And not, or, well, definitely not yell at the patient, uh, not engage in a power struggle with the patient. 
right? That's something that I learned early on from one of my supervisors. If you engage, like uh, you said, the patient said, uh, let's say, um, um, you told me such and such, which something which you didn't say. Said, no, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, you didn't. That, that's a power struggle. Mm-hmm. It leads to nothing. And you're always going to lose. Believe me, you're always going to lose. You, the, the therapist, is always going to lose. And it's going to lead to nothing. So again, don't react. Right? It's not easy. Right? And just say, well, and just disc- and maintain the analytic, what's called this analytic attitude, which is, we can go back to Simone Weil instead, so we don't use the typical Freud and whatever, permitting the other to enter into your consciousness. You see, let the question enter into your consciousness. Let the anger enter into your consciousness. See how it's like to be inhabited by that before you say or react. And if you need time, you can ask, tell the patient, I need time to think about this. But don't feel that you have to react immediately because uh, like there's an urgency. So that leads to the second point, right? Of, of the productivity. I think psychoanalysis from this point of view of, uh, and this is something that I recommend um, reading. He's, his name is Scott Graybow. He has a, a, an essay called Caring, Austerity, and Psychoanalysis. It's part of a, it's called, a, it's, it's like an uncaring project. Online, I forgot the name of the website. I think it's something like oncaring.com or something. He's a social worker and, and, and trained in psychoanalysis. He has this paper called Caring, Austerity, and Psychoanalysis. So he talks about how within, let's say, a capitalist um, structure, there is this idea that, you know, you need to produce results immediately, Right. There's two ideas. One, the production of results and the idea that things have to be certain and measurable, right? You can't produce results if things are not certain and measurable. They come along together. I wouldn't say it's only part of capitalism. It's part of modernity articulated with with capitalism and with the, like, scientist spirit of of the of, of 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 the times i think the scientism scientism which which is not not the again i believe in science right but scientism is something entirely different scientism is the belief that all areas of human experience can be thought through the lens of of science right that's a it's a different thing right um scientism modernity and Modernity in the sense of, of like uh, the, 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 the stress on rationality and certainty specifically and capitalism go together to produce this idea that productivity and certainty and knowledge and knowing come all, all, all together, right? So this is, this is, and with a certain idea of time, 
right? That things have to be fast. It mm -hmm. shrinks time to the time of, let's say, capitalist productivity. So this is very much related to uh, how, especially in the United States, mental health is thought of, right? Which is, again, I, I go back to what I said in the beginning. I don't have anything inherently against things such as CBT or DBT, which I think have helped people um, and help people. But my sense is that if it's this pervasive uh, only form of therapy in within the, the mental health system in the United States, the one that insurances will pay for because it's short term, because it's is evidence based. So, so evidence based, and we all know that nowadays. Well, you're probably aware of that. That the kind of evidence that it was based on is is rather you know unstable. It doesn't, and now it's been shown that for it's not as efficient for depression or PTSD mm -hmm. as it's thought to be, and that after a while it stops working, and now there's more research done on, on psychodynamic psychotherapies that they work, they start to work slower, but once they start working, they work better than these shorter term, more manualistic forms of treatment, and that they continue to work even after the treatment has ended, right? There are several, there are several, you know, I can, I don't know if you want to put them online afterwards, I can mm -hmm. send you links to these studies, which are very interesting. But the point is that now is, again, is something manualistic, something that is the same for everybody as a social mental health project, not it, right? Connected to insurances who want people to, you know, be out of the treatment very fast. So, uh, so again, it's about, and it's about producing results, right? Mm -hmm. That's why it's thought, these, it's thought in terms of tools that you give patients, they apply their tools, and then there has to be results, and it's mostly symptom-focused, right? So, as I think Scott Graybow talks in this paper, which I find is very interesting, there's, let's suppose, you know, a, a I worked at a clinic for several years, a mental health clinic, an Article 31 agency, and let's say a, perp, a poor person comes there who's on Medicaid or working class and comes, they just want to talk to somebody. And then when they get there, they're just addressed in this, and I, I saw that, rather in personal way in which they're given like an interview, you know, like the intake, and then they're they're giving some exercises to do here and there. And they've always felt that they didn't get to talk to anybody about their, their problems. And I experienced that because they would tell me when they came to see me, I was one of the few who was psychodynamically oriented, not, I think the only one in the clinic. Um, and they would, they were like, aren't you going to say something? They were expecting me to do something, mm -hmm. right? To do something, right? And I was like, no, just tell me about you. They eventually got used and they were like, oh, nobody has ever just sat down to listen to me. Just listen to me without saying anything, right? So there's this expectation and, and then it's instilled within the people who go to the clinics, right? That something must be done. 
This is a culture in when there's you have to recognize a problem and do something about it. Yeah. I think the this ethics of psychoanalysis is the opposite, that you don't feel that you have to do something. Because sometimes when you do something, trying to help, you simply you solve the problem here, but you don't solve it here. You displace it to another area. Mm-hmm. Where you try, you move too much directly into action. So to feel that you don't have to do anything. What does that mean? Remember, let's go back to Simone Vow. The stillness. Say the patient, continue speaking. So psychoanalysis. The, the free associative process of psychoanalysis, I'm going to be, I'll be very radical here about it, has no aim. It has effects, which is different. What are some of the effects of free associative praxis? Well, diminishing of symptoms, diminishing of suffering, Etc. People get to know themselves, but that's not the aim. If you have a specific aim in mind, when you see a patient analytically, like a treatment plan, you're never going to get to to open the complexity of a person's subjectivity. You can't have a goal in mind. Believe me. You can start thinking about the patient, you know, patterns, things that come up, but there can't be a specific aim. Like I'm going to, you know, I've seen patients who come with a, oh, they present originally with a low-grade depression or anxiety. So if I think of it, okay, let's, let's get to work and lower your depression and your anxiety, right? It's not that I don't care about that. But because I care, I have to not, it's, it's paradoxical, not have as my aim to just focus on that symptom. And I have a patient that I worked for years, and then the problem was, was not in the depression or the anxiety. It was elsewhere. It was about something else that they had never discovered if we had just focused on the symptom. So if anything, the aim of psychoanalysis and, and the free associative process could be the search for truth, the truth about the patient's unconscious, the, the truth about their desire, the truth about you know, their conflicts, right? And sometimes truth comes with pain and suffering. You see? Um, so it's not, it, I would say if it's truth, but, but, but the way of getting at the truth is something that I, it's unplanned. I don't have a strategy of how to get at that truth because I don't know what the person is going to say before they start saying it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, and it's something about, again, and I think that's why psychoanalysis has, it's, it requires, we're talking about temporality. It has an entirely different temporality. It takes time. Who has time nowadays to do to do that? Within this world, capitalist, 
world of production that uh, being productive, being efficient, we that we live in, mm -hmm. especially the poor and the working class people. There's no spaces of care to give them that time that they need. They can't afford it. And that's terrible for me because I do believe that psychoanalysis is a liberatory praxis. Because, and I'll stop there so you, I mean, I'm just, I think I'm just on a ramble here. Like, <laughs> there's, there's like two, at least two forms of suffering. One, it's when the person, let's say the, the, the neurotic symptom, right? Someone who, who's neurotic. Let's broadly speaking, you know, for the people who are listening, I don't I hate getting technical, so I won't get technical. It's when somebody continues to do the same thing, right? Invariably. Uh, despite the fact that it brings them suffering, mm -hmm. and they can't stop, and they don't know what they're do why they're do constantly doing it. Let's say somebody who procrastinates all the time. I'm procrastinating, 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 procrastinating. I can't stop. I don't know why I'm procrastinating. I would love not to procrastinate. I would have to, etc. Right? Why do I end up in relationships with people who are the wrong people who are don't really care about me? And then again and again, but I'm not looking for them. And I end up in again and again and again and again. Okay, so, uh, right, that's the thing. And then people don't know. And then they find themselves constantly in the same situation, doing the same thing, etc. Right? That produces suffering. The repetition. The it's like something is stuck. Is stuck there. Is frozen. So there's something about repetition at times that produces a kind of freezing of the mind that produces suffering and oh but it's but why do people do it nonetheless right some people would say well because they gain some pleasure from it right there's something about it that oh, why would i do something that produces suffering in me there has to be some motivation or else i wouldn't do it right or, well, other people would say, well, it's familiar to me, right? At least I know what's the outcome. It's a, it's a, it's a known suffering. Thank you.